Well, hello and welcome to the Tim Masso podcast. It's been a while and I apologize, but we're making up for lost time. We have a very special guest today, Aaron Buzzer Canyon of Javid Nagan Watches. Aaron, welcome to the podcast. Tim, thank you for having me. It's been quite some time um, that we've we've discussed anything at all, really. Uh, so it's a pleasure to be here. It's my absolute pleasure to have you here. And those of you who are watching the YouTube version of this will see behind me off to my right, there's an enormous Porsche 911 Turbo Lego kit that Aaron sent me completely unreasonably as I am happy to showcase the incredible machine he's made, but he's more than gracious. And now I have one more wonderful memory in the form of that plastic Porsche. Aaron, tell me, how did we get from where you started to here, take me back to who you were as a kid, your formative years, not just watchmaking, but your formative years, period. Sure. Uh, to be completely honest, Tim, I, I'm not one of the stories that you hear, you know, two years old, um, you know, somehow, some way coming across a watch and just being enamored by it. Um, I wasn't really exposed to the world of watches or watchmaking um, up until maybe. 11 years ago, 12 years ago. Um, as far as the formative years, what I really think translated into what I do now is more of the artistic and design background. Um, I always drew, um, I always painted, um, I always did something creative, um, never really engineering wise or mechanically building things or anything like that. It was more just expression. Um, so that's what I would say uh, really I kept or retained um, as a quote unquote talent, if you want to call it that. Um, so a lot of fine painting at one point in high school, um, I had a black book or multiple black books where I would just draw and design. And um, I got into uh, graffiti at one point, um, not, not going out and tagging, you know, buildings or anything like that. Um, I always stuck to just the, just the drawing them and painting them and, and coloring them. So um, really the background was that. Um, and uh, it really didn't come to me in a, in a watches context until later on in my life. So around 18, 19 years old is when I started um, paying attention to the world of watches. And what I mean by that was, you know, like most uh, anybody starts uh, in the collecting world is Rolex and, and Patek. Um, and I knew about Rolex. I heard about it through movies and music and, you know, all of that. And before then, I hadn't really looked into it, one, because I couldn't afford anything like that. Um, and two, um, I just, I wasn't drawn towards it at that time. Um, as, as I started learning more and more, I was like, okay, you know what? Like, I want a nice watch one day. What's a nice watch to aspire to? Um, I stuck to Rolex and I started learning more about Rolex and I was like, wow, that's a nice watch. That is a great watch, uh, 8,000, whatever it was, the price. Um, I was like, one day I'm gonna own something like that. And then I learned about Patek Philippe. Um, and I was like, wow, like $50,000 watch, you know, $60,000 watch. Um, I'm like, well, who in their right mind would ever pay <laughs> that kind of money for anything like that? Um, and um, I started learning about the traditional, you know, watchmaking uh, designs and the technical, uh, you know, modality of what Patek Philippe does. Um, that's where I would say I started. Um, that's really the genesis of it. 
Okay, no, it's funny you say that you didn't start super young, and I'm thinking like, oh, well, I mean, that must mean he he found it in adult life. And you say I started to have interest when I was 19. I'm like, you know, that's right about when I started to become interested. In too. <laughs> I thought I started pretty early. <laughs> no, you, you to be. Well, I mean, because you always hear. Um, but again, my my context in this world or my my connection to it. Um, as far as direct uh, connection is my history with parental or uh, FP Jorn. Um, so I didn't have the um, background or the knowledge out there of what this world was and what it, what it was all, you know, the context of it, the real niche context. So, you know, that's, that's where I come from. Did you go to school for art or engineering or any subjects related to watchmaking? Not, not in the least bit. Um, I, at one point I was playing around with the idea of graphic design. Um, I, you know, in Pasadena, for example, I, I live in a suburb uh, of LA um, and Pasadena is one of the bigger cities next to my city. Um, there's the art, art design center over there, which is world renowned. Um, I was thinking about going and enrolling there at one point and then I realized, you know, I, I'm, I'm expressing myself. Uh, you know, I'm doing what I want to do. Why do I need to go have someone tell me what I need to do. So um, I understand that there's obviously design, you know, uh, modalities and, and history that you want to obviously, uh, you know, absorb, but I was doing that. So I never really had any sort of like formal education in art or fine art or anything like that. It was just merely my passion for it. So now once you began to gain an interest in watches. You said you jumped straight to Rolex and Patek. I got to be honest, when I started, I was like, okay, the world starts with Seiko, it moves up to Tag Heuer, and then you've got like Rolex and Omega. Patek Philippe was not even on my radar when I was in high school. So <laughs> what was the what was the first watch? Because I mean, I guess it probably wasn't Rolex or Patek. So uh, a, a clear distinction has to be made. Nowhere near was I able to afford something like that. So when I say I, that was what I first got exposed to, that was it. I was just exposed to it. I was never a, a collector of them or anything like that. I was, I come from a middle-class family, Tim, uh, of immigrants. Um, uh, you know, I've never wanted or, or you know, my sister and I, uh, you know, were raised by really good parents uh, and um, we didn't come from, you know, crazy money or anything like that where Rolexes and Pateks are being traded around, you know, around the family. So. Um, I just appreciate it from a distance. Um, now, in terms of how I fell in love with the industry and, and when I came to realize, oh man, this, this is my purpose. Like this is my world. This is where I need to be. Uh, I was, if I'm not mistaken, I was driving to the gym um, and I believe I was maybe 17, 18, 19 years old, something like that. Um, there was, you know, as millennials do, you know, you're going to the gym trying to get pumped up and get ready. Um, I was listening to some hip hop song and I heard the words Frank Mueller mentioned. Um, <laughs> I, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I think it was future. That was, <laughs> was, uh, was the song. Um, so I heard it. I'm like, the hell's a Frank Mueller? Um, you know, I knew Patek. I knew Rolex. That's what I knew. Um, so I Googled it and I saw a Casablanca Havana. And I looked at it, I was like, wow, man, like that is, it's so atypical. It was so different from anything I'd ever seen. Um, and again, limited experience and knowledge of what was going on in the industry. So looked into it as a master of complications and all of the stuff that was Frank Mueller, the crazy numerals and the crazy hours and all that stuff. 
um, I was like, that's what a watch should be. Not, not the round, you know, uh, you know, the typical thing that you hear, uh, at least to me. Um, so I started looking into it and I learned about Frank Mueller and I learned about Roger Dubuis and all these, uh, you know, these atypical watchmakers. Um, and I was like, wow, man, this is a world. Like this is a whole, there's the world of watches and then there's a world within the world of watches. Um, so that's when I really started to dig in and go into the independence um, and learn about, you know, all of the greats and all of the history of watchmaking, Breguet and Fauchem and, uh, you know, all of these, amazing great watchmakers that nobody really teaches you about or really is even at the forefront of all of this stuff so um that's when i really got obsessed and fell in love and realized okay this is where i belong um i was working in real estate at the time um that was my previous career and um and if you want some background on that, only because I came out of college, I didn't really know what I wanted to do, as you know, millennials are, are known to uh, sort of, you know, operate. Um, so my father's been in real estate. So I said, OK, I'll go into real estate. Um, so that was my career before. Um, and um, I, that's, that's, that was the moment that, OK, I'm going to commit my life to this, to this industry. That's, that's what I am here to do. So. How deep did you get into collecting before you decided you wanted to create your own watch? Were you a collector first or did you, did you jump straight to designing your own watch? No, I, I, I collected. I mean, again, very modest. Uh, Seiko's, uh, I had a presage. It was a rose gold uh, case with a uh, with the, the chocolate. It was a beautiful dial. Um, so that was, I think that might've been my first actual watch. Um, and when the time came, I met my, now my wife, my fiance at the time, um, we told each other, hey, let's let's allocate a certain amount of money to wedding gifts to one another. Um, and we went to, there's a local dealer here somewhere uh, in San Gabriel called uh, Hingwali. Um, and um, I went there. I, I was, and I knew Panerai at the time. I had learned about it. And I was like, man, Panerai is like, that's iconic, you know. Um, I said, I want a Panerai. Um, not a crazy expensive one with complications or chronographs or anything. I just want the icon. So um, my first luxury or high high end watch, quote unquote, uh, was a seven five four radio mirror wireless. Um, I I still have it. I love it. It is one of the most, if not most, important watches in my collection um, because one of the sentimental connection. My wife gave you know gifted it to me for the wedding, and um, it was the first one. You know, it's it's it started my actually having something on my wrist that made me feel good about this industry. So um, I have that, um, that's where I started. Um, I've been lucky enough to be ad, uh, allocated a, uh, you know, another icon and I can get into the collecting philosophy that I have. Um, yeah, later, but, um, yeah that, that's good. I, I think I, I just wanted to sort of walk us up to the present day because sure. I mean, everyone kind of wants to understand where a collector comes from in terms of passion and background. Because I know that as early as 2019, you were showing me mock-ups of the case you had created. So when, what was the genesis of the Javid Nagan brand? Where did this start? Walk me from there to now through every step. So I think where it, the, the inception of the idea in my, in my brain um, was, I was at a mall and I, I think it was South Coast Plaza and this was 2017, 2018, um, where 
I was walking through the different boutiques and different and great brands. It's never to knock any sort of brand or anything like that, what I'm about to say, but um, I always tried watches on and looked at the different designs and different, uh, you know, leather straps and full bracelets and all of that. Um, and it had one or two things, but it didn't knock off all of the things that I wanted. Um, so really the inception of the idea was like, man, there's nothing really out there that really I find perfect. Um, and how long ago was that? That was 20, I think late 2017, early 2018, um, if I'm not mistaken. So that was really the, I guess, someone planting the seed inside my brain um, where it would even come to be Habinaga. Um, then I started playing around with the idea of like, man, what if I drew something out? You know, I used to draw, I used to paint, I used to do fine art, all that stuff. Um, why don't I draw something out? So in my parents' living room at the time, I hadn't moved out yet. We hadn't gotten married yet. Um, I um, started just drawing it out very roughly, very basic uh, shapes and everything. And I gave it the shape that you see now, albeit that um, you learn when you're, when you go into production, the technical feasibility of things that you submit drawings to a manufacturer and they're like, hold on, hold on, hold on. You have no idea what you're doing here. We have to, we have to compress this. We have to do this. We have to do that. So um, if you looked at the original drawing of the Havinagan case, um, it would be much bigger, much thicker, and just just larger overall, dense. Um, so that's where it started. I, I started designing the lugs and, and the, the facets of the case and all that. Um, and I just went crazy on, on researching and finding the manufacturing partners that I would need. Um, that's where it really started. Did you start with a budget or did you kind of find your suppliers, add up all of their quotes and figure out what it would cost after the fact? So, so I, I started thinking about the, what the brand would be overall. Um, and I thought, okay, should I, initially I was like, you know what, I wanna um, create something that's accessible to everyone. Um, and then I, over time, as I designed the case and started realizing, hey man, like this is a, this is gonna be a complex case. This is not gonna be a cheap thing. Um, so I, I, I let that idea go and started realizing that I'm going to build something that I would find absolutely perfect on my wrist and with no, with no design constraints or budget constraints within reason, of course. Um, so there was really no budget. I was just kind of out of ignorance, emailing, um, partners and saying, Hey, I have this idea. How much would it be to prototype? Um, and just trying to find the right partner that understood what I was trying to do, that was willing to come uh, to the middle ground and, you know, someone that's outside of the industry um, and try to help me build this thing. So um, it was that, it was just crazy Googling and, and trying to find the right people and emailing and communicating with them. Um, and I, I, like I said, Tim, I don't come from money. My parents don't come from money. Um, you know, we, I had a modest salary at the time. It was just funneling as much cash as I could into this project um, without breaking the bank. And, you know, we had a marriage coming up and we were going to go live out on our own for the first time and we we're going to have a mortgage and all that stuff. So it was a lot of, uh, you know, just trying to be smart and sacrificing where I needed to sacrifice so I can afford to do this. Now, a lot of people who are listening may have had this idea to create their own watch at some point, but they wouldn't know where to even start. You talk about calling suppliers and sending emails, and most people wouldn't even know the first name to begin that list. So who do you work with on a supply basis? Because I think people really respect that Max Booser, Chapek, a lot of modern independents like to talk about who their partners are. 
So, so I, I love the question because um, first and foremost, I am nothing without them. Um, it's impossible without them. I'm not a watchmaker. Um, and I can talk about, you know, that dynamic a little later. Um, Schwartz Etienne is my trusted um, case and uh, movement manufacturer. Um, Kadranor out of um, uh, Porte du uh, in Switzerland, which is not too far from Le Chaux de Fun where Schwartz Etienne is. Um, Romeo is, is my contact there and his team is absolutely incredible. Uh, Jean Rousseau for the straps. Um, for now, that's it. We are. I'm starting to discuss uh, the second project with um, another movement maker, but we're we're trying to see where we're going to go. So um, those are the three main right now. Now it must be difficult to reach out to these brands and say, "Look, I'm just getting my start." Did they ask for any volume commitments up front? Do you have any volume goals that are tied to the brand? I, I mean, look, um, there are. Uh, minimums, I guess you can say. Um, Schwartz Etienne is really special in that they will work with you, um, as, as, or that's been my experience at least. Um, so if you order a certain amount, your your per unit price is going to be this. If you hit uh, higher, then it's going to go lower. Um, so, I mean, there are, but there really aren't. It's really what can you afford to do. Um, I've I was lucky enough to hit a certain minimum. With my first production run for the OO, um, and we're we're doing okay. So, you know, that's that's where I'm at. Okay, yeah, and I don't mean to intrude too deeply into no, that. People uh -huh. have questions about how you can operate on such a small scale. Um, it, you know, it seems it seems incredible. Uh, and I would also just kind of ask about the prototyping process. Like, how did you work through case designs and dial designs? It must be awfully circuitous, especially during a pandemic for you to send drawings and them to send physical copies of the prototypes and circle back on that. Sure. So it's been a process, uh, to be completely honest. That's why it, it sort of took so long, uh, to be completely honest, Tim. So in 2019, I met with you um, and I showed you that prototype. That was from initial um, a contractor that I worked with in Switzerland that was known for making cases, Lab, L-A-B. Um, and that was where it came from. Um, it's 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 your you one door opens, Tim, and you go through the one that opens. You know, uh, it's it's not there's no right way, I suppose. I mean, I told myself I'm committing to this. Um, whatever that means, whatever route I have to take to make this happen, if it's sacrificing um, buying a car or buying this or or spending money elsewhere, so be it. Um, so. It took two and a half years for me, my personal funds, um, to to fund this thing. And the, we're lucky. I'm lucky to say that um, the first prototype or the first two or three prototypes of the case itself that came, um, we hit it off with that. Um, what you see now as the production model um, is not too far off from the initial prototype of the case, uh, that, that blue uh, 3D printed mold that I showed you. Um, so again, I, I, I have to give it up to Schwartz Etienne and Kadrano who understood the vision. And remember, I've, I haven't even been to Switzerland yet. I'm going in, in about two, three weeks, um, for the first time process from the United States, from the United States emailing. Um, I actually had not done a video call with them up until probably mid last year. 
Um, so it was a lot of just drawing it out and being very concise and very precise with what I was telling them. Um, and you know, there's, there's no one better than the Swiss in my opinion with this stuff. Um, I mean, I give them 10% of the picture and they know what I'm talking about. So like, like Bucer, like all these different people that work with different um, artisans and, and the engineers and the, the watchmakers, it's them. And I want to, that's part of the, what I want to do down the line is glorify them. Um, because as you know, Tim, uh, our world to us, it's huge. It means everything to us. Um, to the outside world, they don't know what's going on. They have no idea who's behind, uh, you know, uh, the guilloche done on Royal Oaks and, uh, you know, brigades and all of this stuff. It's our job to communicate that um, and glorify these people because they're really the people that we need to take care of because there's so few. Now, the cheapest way to do this would probably have been to go to Salida, which is able to make movements and entire watches. And there are small companies and companies as large as Breitling that have used Salida to make a watch from start to finish. Um, if you have a little bit more money, you can go to Vauche and you can start talking to them about supplying movements and maybe the extended Parmigiani parts family. Schwarzetien, especially the ASC 200 micro rotor you used, is by no means the obvious or entry level option for specking your own watch. So how did you decide what the specification of the watch should be? Because you didn't go for an entry level timepiece or an entry level brand. Right. Um... As far as what, I guess I, where it started was, okay, what is the watch? What am I building? Um, that was the first initial uh, starting point. So I said, I don't, I have a bigger wrist. I have about a eight inch wrist um, diameter. Um, so, you know, by no means do I have a small wrist for, you know, 36 or 34 millimeter dress watches or anything like that. It just looks toyish on me. Um, and I also don't like, you know, huge thick you know, these monstrous things on, on the wrist. So I said, okay, 40 to 41 millimeters is where I wanna, wanna dance. Um, so that was the first initial thing. And, <clears throat> excuse me, um, my experience with, with F.P. Jorn, um, you know, you, you start learning about, oh my God, how amazing is this guy and, and what he does, you know, all these complications and super thin cases, um, you know, just technical craziness. Um, so I always told myself, I gotta go thin. I, I like thin profiles on my wrist. Uh, I'm okay with, you know, larger presences. It's just, um, I wanted that profile to be thin. So I told myself it's gotta be under 12 millimeters thick. Um, and, and it came to be 11.6 millimeters. Um, so I had all the parameters uh, that I wanted and told them this is where, this is where I wanna be. Um, and that's when I had the first initial uh, FaceTime call uh, with with uh, Schwartz at the end, and you know I, I showed them the drawings and the different um, uh, parameters that I wanted to operate under, and it was that uh, you know they just I mean it's it they're very good at what they do, um, like you said um, it's not where I initially had the thought of going. Um, it was only after quite a bit of, you know, going through different Google searches and, and different manufacturers of like, where can I find the thing that's going to make my perfect watch come to be? Um, so I had talks with Vauchet. Um, there were certain limitations um, that we couldn't work on in, with the first one, at least. Um, you know, they're very much possibly a player in, in, in the next one. Um, 
And I came across Schwartz Etienne. I was like, man, like these guys are next level, you know, overcurl hairsprings and they do their own hairsprings and, um, you know, just the technical specifications of the movements and what they're capable of doing as far as finish and, and the coatings and all of that. So I was like, I found my people. As long as they will have me, I'm with them. So that's how it came to be. So for our friends out in cyberspace who may not have a visual, the Javi Nagan initial launch, the HN00, is 40 millimeters in grade five titanium. It has an ASC 200 movement, which is a micro rotor automatic with an 86 hour power reserve, overcoil hairspring. They make their own escapement, hairspring, balance. And there are some custom elements too. I think the nickel anthracite coating is, is unique to Javi Nagan. Uh, the watch is 100 meters water resistant, and I believe there is a limited edition one version, the blue dial, um, but there are three different dial colors available. The watch itself is very compact and it's feature dense. Uh, could you tell us a little bit about the watch now that it has arrived and it's available, uh, what it has to offer specifically? Sure. So I was always, like I said, um, I find inspiration from what the greats used to do. Um, when I first started designing the watch, Tim, um, I wanted to uh, uh, attach a, a design philosophy to it. Um, because in my opinion, you need that to create a identity in the world. So the, the philosophy was this paradoxical idea I have of a perfect watch because I've always been a sports watch guy. I loved just the, the casualness of having something high-end on your wrist and wearing it with t-shirts or shorts or you know whatever. Um, I always loved that. At the same time, I always, um, well, not always, but you know, at my time at Epijon, you start to force, you're forced to think about and learn about the history of watchmaking. And specifically the period that I, I fell in love with was the 18th, 19th century of, of watchmaking. So really Breguet um, was, was the one I paid attention to and still do. Um, in more recent uh, inspiration, I guess you can say, is George Daniels. The, and I, what I mean is not the technical abilities that they had, because I'm not a watchmaker. I can never aspire to create the things that they did. Um, that's not my, my uh, reason to exist, I guess. Um, I fell in love with how pure their designs were. Um, Biuchet with Breguet, you know, the first to do it on, on, the, on, the, on the watches and, um, you know, to really... Um, bring the design uh, elements into play for something that was used as a tool, um, you know? So um, that's where I found the inspiration and what I wanted to create was this paradoxical thing. So if you look at the case, it's very modern, uh, it's curved, it's got a curved uh, case back. So it wraps around your wrist. Um, I, I always loved the vintage or neo-vintage era of these, uh, cushion um, uh, case designs and these fun case designs, the John Schaefer, um, you know, APs, uh, the, the amazing things that they used to do that nobody was really doing anymore. Um, to this day, now they're starting to, I think the, the big boys started to pay attention to the independence. Um, and uh, we, I think the independence kind of put them in, in a place where they're like, hey, we got to, we got to start innovating here because something, this is not going to uh, keep going. So, um, it was that, it was, how can I combine these two different modalities that technically aren't supposed to coexist? So if you look at the OO's, uh, you know, it's Guiche, it's a very traditional art. Um, it's It's got the Grand Dorge uh, pattern on it, which I fell in love with immediately when I saw it. 
and um, the case in a way is sort of also inspired by the modern architecture that I was exposed to in my real estate career in Los Angeles. Um, so if you look at the different facets uh, on the flank of the case and um, the hard edges, the, the cold geometry of the case itself, it's very contemporary. Um, and you'll see as we progress into the second, third, fourth model where the design language is going to be introduced um, for the brand, you will see where I'm headed with this. Um, so that was really how I designed it. Now you keep referencing your experience with FP Journ and for our viewers and our listeners out in cyberspace, could you explain exactly what that experience entailed? It was the blessing of my life. Um, it, it, that is the most concise way I can put it. Um, how it came to be was, um, I was looking for a job within the industry. I, I didn't care where. I just wanted to go be in it. Um, I'm a huge follower and, and uh, fan of uh, Jean-Claude Biver. So I listened to a lot of his interviews and the speeches that he's given. And I agree with everything he has to say as far as, um, you know, if you want to be in this industry, go be in it. Um, like you can't be an idealist in an industry that's so small. Um, and, uh, you know, you can't have your cake and eat it too. So, um, I got really lucky in that regard. It was, um, where I met you. Um, my wife had gifted me tickets to the watch time event in 2019 in LA, in downtown LA. Um, I had learned about Jorn and I was like, oh my God, FP Jorn is going to be there. You know, like I, I had only dreamt of even being exposed to a Jorn. Um, so I go and I, uh, speak to the, the person that was working for the boutique at the time. Um, and I saw, I tried on the watch that I later ended up being my staff watch, uh, the Chronomet Saran Havana in red gold. And, uh, I met Pierre Halimi, who you, you know, well, um, and I told him like, I have to be here. I, I don't care what it is. I don't care when it happens. I need to be a part of the company because I think this guy's doing something very important and that nobody else is doing. Um, so he gave me his card and said, look, we don't have any openings right now. Um, be, in, be in touch. And it was, I want to say two, two and a half months after that point, I had, you know, sent like a follow-up email saying, hey, Pierre, you know, just wanted to check in. Um, you know, if there's anything, I'd love to be considered. And he said, funny enough, there, and Pierre, he's quick. Like he responded, I think it was five minutes of me sending that email. He said, go talk to uh, Laurent and Stephanie um, in, in, in the LA boutique. And I was like, I didn't know there was an LA boutique, <laughs> FP Short, you know? Um, just because I was so far away from it, I was like, man, one day in, in France or Geneva or something, I'm going to go be exposed to these watches. Um, I go and I remember um, meeting Laurent for the first time, who is Francois Paul's brother. Um, I couldn't get a read on this guy. And, you know, I come from real estate. I come from sales. I come from talking to people and being able to read people. This guy was, you know, I'm sitting there talking to his at the time wife. Um, and um, she was great. And he's just staring off into space. And I'm like, man, like, am I doing good? Like, is this going to work? Like, he's not even, he's not even clocking me. Um, met for the first time, um, went back. I think they had interviewed a couple of other people and called me back for a second time. That's when... Uh, they took me into the back office. We talked about, you know, the finer details of, you know, salary and all that. In my head, I was like, dude, you can pay me almost, you know, uh, an abysmal amount and, and I'll be here. So um, they were very gracious. I came on board not having any sort of experience. So my first foray into this world, luckily, by the grace of whatever higher power there is, um, was FP Jorn. Um, and, and more than that, 
the brother of Francois Paul teaching me what I needed to learn. So going into that, not knowing much about the technical side, and I had no idea what a remontoir or you know any of these vertical tourbillons or any of that stuff was. Um, he kicked my ass up, down, left, and right. Um, you know, I, I messed up a lot, and um, and over time, you just learn, you know, and you start. If you have the passion, if you have the the natural tendency to think about these things, then you're like, okay, wait a minute. Why is this wheel connected to this wheel? And why is the remontoir acting the way it does? And now, I'm not saying I know how Francois Paul's remontoir works. Um, what I'm saying is a lot of it is all logical. So you start thinking in very logical terms. Um, that was the greatest exposure I could have had to the world of higher watchmaking. So that's where I started. That's where I learned everything I know now. Um, obviously, I you know study and read different books, and you know I really go into the historical books. And Pierre was really good with that. He gave me a lot of recommendations on on um, you know the, the history of watches and time telling. Um, so very lucky to and fortunate to have been part of that family. I still am part of that family. I don't work for them, obviously, but. Um, Laurent is my bigger brother and uh you know and uh, I will cherish those days for the rest of my life so well very cool now you are making a watch in your own right and uh, you do offer people choices tell me a little bit about how you decided on the initial dial codes you've got jade you've got plum and then you've got arca blue and the arca blue is a limited edition uh how'd you pick them so I'll start with um the jade and the plum I knew I wanted to offer two different variants only because I, I personally picked this up from, uh, you know, Francois Paul in that you give people options within what you are um, setting as a parameter. So I didn't want to do salmon or any of these other, um, you know, the, the colors that are normally or typically used in the industry, um, but I wanted to give people two options. So um, this initial one, I said, okay, it's a sports watch. It's it's meant to kind of um, uh, be the entry into the brand. Um, I said I've always liked these lavenderish tones and these khakiish greenish tones, um, but with this one, I you know after looking at the pattern of the of the guilloche, I was like, man, this could really play well with white. So I said, let's tone tone it down. Let's make the make the lavender a more a darker purple, which became that plum color. Um, and on the, uh, the greenish side, I said, let's turn it into more of a jade color. Um, that's when, you know, the lacquering and the, uh, you know, all of the different uh, varnishings that came into it. Um, I wanted to give people two different options, uh, main, main two options that, um, and as you see the, the O1 and the O2 and the O3 come, uh, you know, in the next few years, you will see why I picked those colors because those will be the two consistencies as far as dial offerings. Now the blue I ended up doing because we were sampling different dial colors at the time with Cadranor and man, I saw this blue, I was like, man, like this would be, I, I need to use this like, in one way or another, I need to use it. So I said, okay, you know what, why don't I make this, this one a limited edition because it was a little different. On the outset of the dial, um, you see this black um, that the gradient fades into. Um, the other models, while they have their own gradient effect, it's not really the same uh, effect. So 
I said, you know what, let's let's also feature that, make it uh, out of 100. So once we reach that 100 number, it's done, gone, it'll never be made again, and you will have the jade and the plum that will stay in the model line um, up until, you know, when I decide that I want to iterate on them. So um, that's that's why I did what I did. Now, the dial itself is a fairly complex assembly on your watch. You do have applique indices, you do have guilloche, you do have lacquering, and in one case, you even have gradient lacquering. Could you walk me through how the dial is made? Because it really is the face of your watch. Sure. So you you have the um, the the blanks that are pressed, cut. I mean, I have all kinds of different videos um, because I, I I'm huge. Again, I hadn't gone to the manufacturer, so I told them send me anything you can, pictures, videos, whatever. Um, so they go through different steps of pressing and uh, the, di the dial guilloche is stamped. It is not a hand cut guilloche. And the reason I did that is because I was playing around with the idea of, do I do hand cut or do I do a stamped? Um, and it came to be that it, the watch was, the price of the watch would have to be over $10,000. And that's not what I wanted the first one to be. Um, the initial idea of, of Javi Nagan, the vision of it, Tim, was so that I can expose people uh, or a broader base of people to kind of the, the dynamics of high horology and what you find as far as design motifs and all the, you know, the, the finishings and all that stuff to a broader base of collector. So I decided, you know what, let's go stamped. Let's do that. And, you know, in the future, if, if it comes to it that I decide I want to do something hand cut, I, I'll do it. Um, and uh, so it goes through different uh, stamping procedures and uh, the varnishing and the lacquering and the, uh, the gradient effect. So it's a painted gradient effect. Uh, we don't do uh, electric galvanization or the chemical galvanization. Um, not to say that the other ones, the next ones will likely be done through chemical galvanization. Um, but that's the process. It's about six to seven different processes, uh, a mixture of hand and uh, machine finishing. Um, and that's that's how they come to be those brilliant resplendent dials, especially in the sun. You get a very cool flinke effect, like lacquer yeah. on top of guilloche. It's a nice glossy depth to it, not one right. or other, but both. That's right. That's right. And you chose not to put your name on the dial. So could you explain to me how your, your cultural background kind of led to the name of the company and the decision not to put your name on the dial? Sure. So it, it's it's there's two reasons why I did that. Um, the cultural aspect is one thing. Um, the, the number one thing and the most important reason why I didn't do it is because if you study the, the way watchmaking was done in, in, the, in the 18th, 19th century or in just generally historical watchmaking, if you're not the guy building the watch, then your name doesn't belong on the watch. Um, so I wanted to kind of respect the history of watchmaking in that regard. Um, more than that, I wanted to build a brand. I didn't want it to be a fashion brand, Tim. I didn't want it to be this, oh, cool thing that I built and um, you know, just iterate and copy designs and, and make something cheaper uh, for more accessible people, sell it for $500 to $1,000, flip it, spend it, um, and, and uh, you know, go off in vacation in Monaco. Um, I want to build something substantial, something important. And um, my name wasn't gonna be on it, so I said, okay, let me think about my own background and my cultural um, upbringing. And I'm Armenian, um, as if, if the name didn't give it away. Um, and I thought, okay, I want it to be a legacy brand. I want it to stand the test of time. And you know, that's eternal. Uh, a word for that is eternal. So I said, okay, what's the Armenian word for eternity? And 
the actual word is Um So I said, okay, that's that's a that sounds cool. How can I how can I make that usable? So I just split it and uh, I commercialized it and called it Havinagan. So that's what the name more or less means is eternity. Now, since we have the watch and you are at, you are on the market now, you are you are shipping product. This is a real going concern. How do you market watches in the era of COVID, especially with so many of the trade shows either scaled back or canceled outright? Um, to be completely honest, Tim, um, I haven't spent a penny on marketing. Um, I've been, yeah, <laughs> I, I mean, look, to be completely honest, I mean, look at what's happened in our world, um, in the watch world, I mean. You have all of these amazing brands, amazing creators, uh, watchmakers and non-watchmakers building these incredible things and offering these, their creations to genuinely passionate, uh, you know, enthusiasts. Um, you can do that just using Instagram. Um, you know, and if you pump enough money into Instagram, you're going to get on people's pages and eventually someone's going to say yes. I didn't do that because I didn't need to do that yet. Um, my time at Jorn uh, really brought me to make incredible relationships. Um, all of the people that I interact with there are my friends, first and foremost. They're not my clients or collectors or I, I wasn't their advisor or anything like that. I was their friend in this uh, mutual passion. So um, a lot of them have supported me through this. Um, I'm glad to say that it's not just them, thank God, because that's not really a good sign. Um, you know, there are strangers that are coming on board and each and every single person that I don't know that emails through asking you about the watch or trying to order the watch, I tell them, hey, let's get on a FaceTime. Like, I, I want to meet you. I want to talk to you. And, and you know, if I can meet with you and shake your hand and, and you know, have a, um, a real conversation with you, that's what I'm really trying to do, Tim. Uh, I mean, that's what these watches are in the first place, is uh, this medium through which like-minded individuals and these passionate people, you can kind of cultivate relationships with. I have some of my best friends from, from my time, uh, you know, in the watch world. Um, people that have been there for me when, let's say, uh, personal matters have come up and, and my family matters or whatever, um, that really help. I mean, that's that goes above and beyond what watchmaking or the physical counterpart is. Um, I can talk to you about it. I can start learning about you because of the thing. But then it becomes about, hey Tim, how you doing, man? Like, how, how's your family? How, how's it's really that? Um, that's what I'm really trying to do is cultivate that community. So virtual, I guess, networking and when possible in-person meetings have eliminated the need to you know, buy magazine ads, billboards, push ads on websites. So once you've made that connection, uh, people have learned about you, learned about the brand, they're interested in the watch. You said you didn't wanna sell a $10,000 watch. So what is the price of entry and what kind of warranty support uh, do you get for that price? So, so the first one is priced at 8,000 uh, US dollars. Um, now, before all the supply chain stuff happened um, and all these shortages happened, um, the prices did go up, so I had to accommodate that. Um, I had to to swallow the the cost. Um, I am playing around with the idea of uh, of um, increasing the price, not not a crazy amount, just to you know kind of offset that change. Um, so it's eight thousand uh, dollars U.S. dollars. Uh, you have a two year warranty, okay? <clears throat> um, and um, yeah, that's that's. Uh, 
in my I I always wanted to take care of the objective um reasoning behind the purchase Tim. I never wanted to give room to anyone to say, oh, that's a little too much for what you're getting. Um, you're getting an overcoil hairspring, you're getting the 100 meter water resistance, the grade five titanium construction, um, the curved sapphire on the back. Um, I didn't take shortcuts. Um, I know what I'm offering. Um, I want people to be excited about it because I'm genuinely excited about it, not just because I'm the creator, um, but because I really want to build a special community and, and by way of that is, is through the watches, so. Uh, very cool. So I think people often, they have reservations about a new brand, but because Schwarz Etienne does underpin your manufacturing base, are they also the authority to provide parts and service down the line when the time comes? Absolutely. So looking towards the future, I think we're going to circle back to Aaron, the collector, for a moment. Um, people are probably interested, even as you see commercial success. Are you still a collector? And if you are, what what have you collected recently or what has caught your interest? Because I know we have more interests than acquisitions. I, I yeah, Tell me about that. Um, uh, so I've been lucky enough to have been allocated a 15500 Royal Oak. Um, uh, and and it wasn't. A lot of people in the beginning, uh, when I when I uh, you know took delivery of it, they're like, "Oh man, you're going for the you're going for the hype watches and that." I was like, "I I collect the icons. That's what I really go after." Um, I mean, I have other you know collection or collecting philosophies that I like to employ down the line too. But um, I have the Radiomir and I have the Royal Oak, um, two icons for two different reasons, um, and uh, what I want to collect down the line is I used to have a crazy list all kinds of stuff um things that would take multiple lifetimes to afford it from where I come from um so that has reduced a lot over over the time that I spent in the industry and really started learning about what piques my interest and what I'm interested in um Andreas Streller um which you know you know obviously but the majority of the world um uh, the watch world doesn't even know that name. Um, so people like him, I, I very much um, am interested in vintage Roger Dubuis and vintage Frank Mueller, uh, Daniel Rolot. And, uh, you know, that's really what piques my interest and what I'm interested in and what I aspire to own one day because there's so few of these people in the world, Tim. Um, and um, I, I want to be part of their history. I want to own part of the history. So. Um, I don't have a crazy amount of watches on a watch list or wish list or anything like that. I want to own parts of the most important people in the industry that I, I consider the most important people in the industry. So um, that's what I'm after. Well, very cool. Now, if our friends online want to find you, where do they find you and how do they get in touch? Um, well, uh, I mean, the best way is through the website, through the, the contact page that we have, or through Instagram, uh, uh, the direct messaging. Um, I'm a one-man show. Um, my wife helps out with admin-related uh, items, but um, I am the one running the entire operation. Um, so, yeah, through Instagram, website. Um, I'm happy to give my phone number to people that want to be in contact. Um, I'm so, not going to ask you to do that here. But no, 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 it's okay. <laughs> 
Very cool. Aaron, thank you so much for joining us. This has been an absolute ball. And if you folks out in cyberspace want to see exactly what Aaron is talking about, I have reviews on my Instagram as well as Watchbox reviews of the Javid Nagan initial product. And let me just say, product doesn't do it justice. It is a wonderful watch. Time out, Tim out, Aaron out. Thanks for logging on. Thanks, Tim.